Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 19th, 2018. This is episode 2349 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Wednesday, so it's interview day. And I'm bringing on my uh, one of my good friends here, Doc Bones, and I think Nurse Amy's going to be with him. I'm not completely sure of that yet. Um, whenever I have a guest on, they fill out a form, and then they get to fill out a bio and a pitch for the show. And I don't know if Bones was doing this for some kind of weird marketing or just to see if I would do it, but he wrote a pretty unique bio for this one. So as I tell you about Joe Alton, M.D., Old Doc Bones from the Expert Council and his wife, Nurse Amy. I'm reading exactly what he wrote, the way he wrote it. And if it was a dare, Joe, you shouldn't dare me to do stuff. So here we go. Joe Alton is an old so-and-so who thinks he knows what he's talking about, even while drooling on his shoes in his rickety rocking chair. He somehow has held on to his medical license for decades despite extreme views on medicine, politics, religion, and the quality of various brands of light beer. Occasionally, he puts pen to paper and has put together a 700-page syphophilic rant on survival medicine called the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way, plus another books that somehow have made him hit the New York Times and Amazon best-selling authors list. Now, Joel Alton, M.D., and his geriatric caregiver, Amy Alton, an advanced registered nurse, nurse practitioner, have written a book called Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibiotics in Austere Settings. The book is all about the infections that will cause deaths in true long-term disaster settings and the antibiotics that would prevent those deaths. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we'll have Joe and I think again Amy on in just a few moments. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need for your prepping ready-made and ready to go. Just point and click and buy on their website at readymaderesources.com. And they do have it all from the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at the company that does what it says and says what it does, readymaderesources.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a great company. I recently uh, got an email from someone said, hey, I built a folding knife with my kid a few months ago, and it, it, it was great. And then somehow, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but like basically a piece fell out of it. And so he emailed KnifeKits and basically said, yeah, I built it, so I probably had something wrong, and there's parts, and I need to get these parts. And KnifeKits just sent him a new parts and said, don't worry about it. It shouldn't have fell apart. Here, fix it. Pretty cool, huh? They take care of my audience, and they have for over seven years now. We've had Knife Kits as a sponsor. Knife Kits will let you uh, enter into the world of building knives as a hobby or even a small business or a side hustle, maybe even eventually go full-time, uh, you know, full-on uh, master bladesmith. Who knows? It all depends. But Knife Kits gives you that easy on-ramp. You can get a basic kit, and a handle material, books, DVDs to tell you how to do what you need to do to turn that into a good-looking knife. You can get sheath material, you name it. They've got it all. They've got the really simple kits, and they've got exotic material like mammoth tusk and 
buffalo horn and all kinds of really cool stuff. Damascus steel, you'll find it all at knifekits.com. Remember, both of our sponsors do do a discount for members of the Members Support Brigade as well. Next up, before we bring uh, old Doc Bones on for his uh, senile rants, let's uh, take a look at this day in history. We're only going back to, well, the year I was born. I was around when this happened because I was born in August. This is December the 19th, 1972. The Apollo Lunar Landing Program ends on December 19th, 1972, when the last three astronauts who traveled to the moon splashed down safely in the Pacific Ocean. Apollo 17 had lifted off from Cape Canaveral, Florida, ten days before. In July 1969, after three years of preparation, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, accomplished President John F. Kennedy's goal of putting a man on the moon and safely returning him to Earth with Apollo 11. From 1969 and 1972, there were six successful lunar landing missions and one aborted mission, Apollo 13, during the Apollo 17 mission, Astronauts Eugene A. Cernan and Harrison H. Schmidt stayed for a record 75 hours on the surface of the moon, conducting three separate surface excursions in a lunar rover vehicle, collecting 243 pounds of rock and soil. Although Apollo 17 was the last lunar landing, the last official Apollo mission was conducted on July 1975, when an Apollo spacecraft successfully rendezvoused and docked with the Soviet Soyuz 19 spacecraft in orbit around the Earth. It was fitting that the Apollo program, which first visited the moon under the banner of We Came in Peace for All Mankind, should end on a note of peace and international cooperation. Indeed. You know, whenever you talk about this, you always get the tin hatters that come out and say, you know what, man, we never went to the moon. I think most of these tin hatters kind of ignore the fact that we went to the moon so many freaking times. Um... They talk like, well, Neil Armstrong, like, is, is that was the only time that we went to the moon. We had six successful lunar landing missions. Um, there's a, a British uh, comedy uh, show called Mitchell and Webb, the Mitchell and Webb situation. I think Hugh Laurie used to be on it, the guy who played Dr. House. Um, they have just an awesome, awesome little skit on on the moon landing supposed hoax. It is freaking hysterical. I will link to it in the show notes. Um, I'll just say, if you think we never went to the moon, you're one of those special children, and there's probably not much I can do to help you. Uh, but on this day in history, we did stop going to the moon, and uh, I don't think we should have. I think that our space program was one of the things that really made young people dream about doing more. And for all the things that our government's done that suck, space programs probably the coolest, uh, and up until now anyway, who knows what will happen next, but up until now, one of the more benevolent things that, that, that they've ever done. Though they did use it to, uh, to further research into ICBMs, that's, that's true there too, but the stuff actually done in space pretty much was for the benefit of all. And while I would prefer a completely private society, if we are going to have our government do something, exploring as far as man can reach and seeing what we learn from it seems like a pretty good way to do things. I remember being a kid that dreamed of growing up to be an astronaut. And I remember being a little kid and was really crushed when I found out that going to the moon thing, we weren't doing that anymore. And I really didn't understand why then. And while I can explain why today, the truth is I really don't understand it uh, today either. I, I wonder where we would be if we'd continued those programs 
and tried to reach out further all the way back then where we would be today. Just some thoughts on that. With that, let's go ahead and introduce my insane geriatric uh, going down the road to dementia old-ass friend, Dr. Joe Alton. With that, hey, Joe, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, you rascal. How are you? Is that Jack? I think that's Jack. That's Jack Spierko. He, the famous survival podcast guy. Oh, my gosh. Are we going to talk to him today? I don't know. I hope so. Me, too. I want his autograph. Me, too. Send it to us. (laughs) See, folks, this is why this is one of these rare occasions while I'm recording the show. I have my guest host on my end. His name is Captain Morgan, and uh, I have to have the captain with me. Along with my regular co-host, Charlie the Dog, whenever I bring these two on. Because, well, if I didn't, I just don't know that we could get through this together. It's uh, true. It's so, true. Well, with with the season, I've added a little eggnog to my rum here. So my cap, <laughs> Captain Morgan is, 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 is uh, swimming in some eggnog. All right. So for people that maybe have been under a rock and, and don't know who the hell the two of you are, you want to kind of introduce yourself to the audience. Some some poor son of a bitch may be listening to this. It's their first episode of the show. So I'm, why don't you all tell who you are? Well, for, first of all, I'd like to say I'm I'm so sorry. This is your first experience. <laughs> Although you may get a little laughter and definitely some education for sure. I'm Amy Alton. I'm actually an advanced registered nurse practitioner, which is a mouthful. And I was and still am a certified nurse midwife, although it's been a few years since I've delivered any babies. And I am married to... I'm Joe Alden, MD. I am a medical doctor. I'm a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, fellow of the American College of OBGYN. And I am a writer, I guess. I'm medical preparedness. I basically write in a very... I don't know, I guess a unique way in that everything I write about assumes that something has happened Mm -hmm. that has taken away modern medicine. And I try to give people strategies on how to deal with keeping their people healthy in those kinds of situations. Uh, We have a website. We have a website called doomandbloom.net where you'll find over a thousand articles on uh, medical preparedness, uh, also videos that are Dr. Bones, you, oh, we're also known, I'm also known as Dr. Bones. Oh, yes. That is my nickname. And I'm known as Nurse Amy. And I just want to tell people before you choose a nickname or a pen name, always Google it first because the first year after I started writing about medical preparedness, if you Google Dr. Bones, you got a 1991 Jamaican exploitation flick called The Horrible Dr. Bones, a horror flick. And so all I have to say is that Google that pen name first before you use it. All right. So, so there you are. All right. So, um, you've got a new book coming out: Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease: The Layman's Guide to Available Antibiotics and Ostrich Settings. Sounds really good. But what the hell made you get up out of your hospital bed, Bones, and write this book? <laughs> Well, the truth of the matter is I get up to urinate so often at night I can't I can't get to sleep. So I place I put my computer between the bed and the bathroom and every time I go I stop and I write 10 words. And over time I got to about 320 pages or so and I just sort of figured that that would make a book. <laughs> but no, seriously, I I'll, I'll tell you one I'll tell you what the reason was. 
I just saw the possibility of some disease causing an epidemic one day. You yes. read about things like Ebola and cholera uh, epidemics and things like that. You read, read about some kind of infection in the news every week. There's E. coli. Right now, this week, as a matter of fact, just yesterday, there was a story about a bunch of cauliflower being recalled due to a bad E. coli contamination. And some but of these. recently we had, there was romaine lettuce. And romaine lettuce. So, you yep. know what this is teaching children? Yes. Don't eat avoid, your vegetables. Avoid your vegetables. <laughs> Don't eat <Yes>. your vegetables. <laughs> That's a sad lesson. There you go. And, and, you know, some of these things, if they really became epidemics, if these little outbreaks became major epidemics, we'd be in big trouble if we didn't have a functioning modern medical system. So, since I write as if something has happened like that, I seem to make sense to talk about the antibiotics that you might be able to get without a prescription that could nip some kind of disease like this in the bud. And we've been writing about this for, for eight years. In fact, that's how you started. Right, for almost, writing a, around, almost a writing decade. Writing really. at all. Right, that's right. Uh, we were published in Survival Blog uh, many years ago. The first one was about these antibiotics. And so we figured it was time to put it into a book that people could use as a reference guide. Awesome. So... Tell folks, you know, really some of the stuff you've been up to in the last few years. Uh, you've been well, doing you know, a our... lot. I mean, you started there, but y'all been doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, Amy has to wipe your face for you, but other than that, <laughs> you know, what, what, what else have you been up to? Well, she also wipes the drool off my shoes. Don't forget that. All right. Well, I, I'm going to deny this accusation because I'm not wiping anything off of you yet. You don't <laughs> have to wipe. I got you a mop, and you can use a All mop. Right. Okay. It's on the way. Thank you. Yes. Thank, you. Yes. Thank you. In fact, Thank for you. Christmas, Merry I'd like Christmas. a um, a house sitter uh, <laughs> gift certificate, please, or a home home care. Home, home care. care. What's it called? Sitter. Visiting Angel. That's yeah. it. Visiting, yeah, visiting angel. angel. Visiting gift, angel. Gift certificates <laughs> so appreciated. Wonderful. Hey, so, uh, well, so what, so are we what have we been doing? Well, we've written three editions of our Survival Medicine Handbook, the yep. essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. The third is 700 pages long. And you know what? We're very, we are really pleased to announce that it actually won the Book Excellence Award in the medical category last year. So that was pretty yeah, that cool. Was we really were very happy to well there's to not that. the thing is there's not a, a lot of awards given to self-published books right you know only if you go through the premier publishers will you possibly get put on any list or given any accolades that's so, true and and i'll tell you we did that, that. right we did we actually went through a publisher for our book on ebola in 2014 during that epidemic and actually put us on the new york times bestseller list for a while so we, we've written books on epidemics like Ebola, like Zika virus. Um, I think we've uh, been writing, gosh, for probably written for about eight or nine different magazines. Uh, you, in the last couple of months, you'll see our articles in Backwoods Home Magazine, American Survival Guide, Survivor's Edge, and, and other magazines. And we travel around the country speaking on medical preparedness. You know, and if you can't see us at, at some of our uh, talks as as we go around the country. You can find us on YouTube at the Dr. Bones Nurse Amy channel. You can find us on Facebook at uh, Doom and Bloom, or join our uh, medical our group at Survival Medicine Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Yes, and also we do classes. That's yes. I think that's been one of the really fun parts because of course our mission is to try and put a medically prepared person in every family. I know that's impossible, but we. We're trying to reach people either through written material or videos 
or actually in person. And we have been from Washington State down into California, down to South through, Florida, through sure. Texas to Florida. Uh, let's see what the hot. I'm not sure what the highest place we did a class in. Probably West Virginia, Niagara Virginia. Falls. Oh, we did a class there. Mm. Yes, you're right. We did a suture class. That's right. But we were on the Canadian side, so I don't yes. know. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, well, so we're, that's pretty far, pretty far north. So uh, I'll tell you, we are just really committed to putting together an army of medics that you know maybe held in reserve for times of trouble, yeah. but people that know what to do if things go south. That's that's our mission, and we're doing as the best we can. We're dancing as fast as we can, well, so to speak. Most people don't have medical training. That's just the facts. You meet few and far between. If you have a big group, usually there's one or two people, but most folks do other things. They have other training, other education, other vocations. Stuff to do. And those are the people that we're trying to reach. The ones who do other things that may encounter these first aid emergencies. And it doesn't always have to be a complete disaster has happened. All it has to be really is you're out of cell phone reach. If you can't call the professional, the ambulance or get to the emergency room and you have something to do and somebody's hurt, that right there is an off the grid emergency situation. Well, there's so also can't... time in, in, in there. So you guys are both medical <laughs> professionals. Let's say somebody has a severed brachial artery. How right. long does it take them to, ble- to bleed out? That's a, that's a serious yeah. question. The serious question yeah. is three to five minutes. Three, three to five, five minutes. minutes. How so, long does it usually take an ambulance to get to your house? Well, it just depends on where you five, live. The, but no, but the truth is, you know, at least five minutes. Right, at right. least five minutes. And imagine truth, having to. Well, first of all, you've got to call nine one one, get and spell your name probably, and spell the street that you're on and the cross streets and how you got there and what's going on and how many people and they ask you a billion questions. You don't even know if the ambulance has been sent out yet. So it could be five minutes of question answering before they even send an ambulance. Well, you That's know, the problem. It's you, just time. Right. You know that you've heard of the golden hour, and that's when, you know, if you don't get somebody with a, a significant injury to medical help within an hour, then their chances of surviving decreases. When it comes to an arterial bleed, you're talking about the platinum five minutes. So you got to deal, you got to have somebody most. at the scene. A bystander, a family member who's able to deal with emergency issues as they occur. And bleeding and all that other gunshot wounds and stuff like that, that's the sexy stuff. Now, some of the stuff that isn't so sexy is infectious disease, pneumonia, um, cholera, things like that. And people need to know about that as well because there may be a gunfights at the OK Corral if times go, if things go bad, but most people that you're going to lose in that kind of setting are going to die as a result of badly contaminated water, uh, poorly prepared food, things like, things like that, or, or even human waste that's not disposed of properly that contaminates things. We've had modern situations, and we're not talking just examples from, say, the Civil War, but Haiti. just... Haiti, Haiti, that was the worst. More people, exactly. di- more people died from diarrhea than died from buildings falling on them in the Haitian earthquake. Exactly, that happened. That is just exactly what was. And, about and then the, the, the guys from what was it, uh, Burma or something like that, they sent him from the UN. They brought cholera in with them. That was great. And, you know that that helped out a lot. So yeah, we're here to help. <laughs> Here's some cholera. 
<laughs> just in case it wasn't bad enough, let's bring this. Yeah. And that's the thing. These are not just, uh, you know, freakish, oh, the Spanish flu or the Civil War. Th- these things happen now. Right now, there are probably a lot of areas that that don't have a lot of medical help for them, and they've got a lot of people that are sick. Well, we don't hear about it, of course, because our news is so obsessive about what's going on in this country and not what's actually happening in the whole world. But things are bad in a lot of places that are examples of what could happen here. We think we're so isolated yeah, and things go so protected here. and sure. there's so much help around, and that's not always true. So with that in mind, then, Bones, if you can remember what you wrote, tell us a little bit about your new book. <laughs> Um, what's it called? <laughs> it's, well, the book is called Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. And basically, it's a guide, a pretty darn unique guide, too, to using antibacterial and antifungal medications, some of them veterinary, that are, that are pretty much available to the average person without a prescription. And basically... It's a unique book. You're not going to find anybody that will talk about this. I mean, not to mention an actual doctor or a nurse practitioner. Right. Because this, first off, because nobody really has experience with it other than a very few people. And we do because we've given antibiotics to our human patients that have had uh, infections. And we've given antibiotics or we've, we've treated with antibiotics fish and birds That's and right. all these other animals that have had infections as well. We've raised tropical fish for many years. I was actually the president of an international uh, aquarium society. We've raised tilapia in ponds. We've had parrots for decades right. as pets. And so we have experience treating these animals when they get bacterial infections, fin rot, things like that with antibiotics. And we've treated humans with antibiotics. And so you actually have somebody that can tell you whether an antibiotic that's a veterinary antibiotic could actually be used safely in humans. Well, mostly because it is human medication. That is no, the- no, no. I saw this article on this, this website on the Internet, so you know it's valid. Yes. And it said I should never use these things because it's going to kill me because there's a <laughs> toxin in there that fish and dogs are immune to, but humans will die from. Oh, right, yes. (laughs) And they're not approved, and this is the thing, it's not approved by the FDA. Of course not, because the FDA wants you to go to the hospital or your doctor's (laughs) office to get your antibiotics because they want to control it for various reasons. But but on what you were saying, it actually is approved by the FDA, they just didn't approve the bottle that it's in. Right. That's exactly the, right. The fact is, they do not manufacture. There is no company, and I dare anyone to find the company <laughs> that produces, manufactures, not bottles, but manufactures the pills, capsules, and powders that go into these bottles that are the fish antibiotics. Guess what? That does not exist. Every one of those pills, capsules, and powders are made in a human antibiotic manufacturing facility. Do you mean there's, no, the there's no such thing as guppy tetracycline? That's what you're telling me. I'm no. telling you there's tetracycline made from humans that are put into bottles. Wait, 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 wait. wait. You said uh, made from humans? No. Yeah. <laughs> four, four. I, I, yes. You yes, soil it green. We're gonna, we're gonna, that's a whole other discussion. Soil it green cycling. 
There you go. That no, might I, be safer than tetracycline. How do though. we know this? <laughs> how do we know this? Very, very, very simple. The, there are a number of antibiotics that are produced that are specifically meant, quote unquote, for fish or for birds, quote unquote. But, but these are only produced in human dosages. And why does a guppy need the same dosage as an adult human? And if you take a look, I mean, I'll, I'll go. It's a whole long story, but let me go to the acid test. The acid test is this very simple. Open a bottle of human amoxicillin, let's say, made by Deva Pharmaceuticals, 500 milligrams, and it's a red and pink capsule and numbers and letters WC731 on it. Open a box of a fish antibiotic like Fishmox Forte, the amoxicillin 500 milligram version of the uh, of amoxicillin, there's nothing else in it, by the way. There's nothing that makes your scale shinier or your fins longer. Open that bottle, and guess what it is? It's a red and pink capsule with the numbers and letters WC731 on it. It is exactly the same thing. We found at least a dozen antibiotics like that, and we described them in detail. And what I just you use mention, them for? I have every single one of these antibiotics. We've used we some have, of them ourselves, not all of them. No, I, I, what I'm saying is we have them. I bought samples of every one of those antibiotics from multiple places so that we could open them and even as recently as two months ago rechecked them i repurchased all of them again cost me hundreds and hundreds of dollars but before we put this book out i wanted to quadruple and whatever else check that exactly what we were putting in that book is still the truth it's still the facts, and it is the facts. Just now, the facts, however, just the facts. however, what we talk about in the book are human antibiotics put into bottles that are relabeled. However, there are many, many other antibiotics and other animal medicines that are specifically made for other livestock. Right, like equine or bovine Lo medicines. That are just Lots not going to be anywhere near the dosage that would be appropriate. And for may human. have other ingredients that shouldn't be put into humans. That exists. There are manufacturers of highly profitable medications. However, it is not a highly profitable, um, let's say, um, mode of making money by doing these hobby medications. You're, you're got, a guppy, you're not going to buy hundreds of dollars worth of antibiotics. Therefore, there is no sense in a manufacturer specifically making fish antibiotics for hobby fish. And as someone who keeps fish, let me kind of add a little more to that. So you can give things to a horse that won't harm a horse that will kill a person. When they say you know, it's strong enough to kill a horse or something, there's a reason for that. Yes. They're, they're yes. bigger than us. They can tolerate things we can't. You know, I've seen horses take hits from venomous snakes that would have knocked a person on their ass, and the horse gets a swelling and kills the snake and goes on about its life. Um, that's not how fish work. If my dog cracks a hard enough fart off in this office of mine, he'll probably kill one of my fish. <laughs> it, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, if something was harmful to people and you put it in water with a fish... You're going to get a dead fish. I mean, basically, fish tanks are life support systems for fish. You know, it's like if you pull the plug, like pulling the plug on Granny, in a day or two, all the fish die. Right? So you can't have, like, these harsh, damaging, dangerous chemicals 
that you're giving to a guppy or an angelfish or a danio and it makes them healthy or saves their life, and a person's going to take it and die. The entire concept is just stupid. It's impossible. Now, that, the other thing you're saying is really important. It's the same pill. You can open it up, go to the PDR, look at it at the physician's death reference, and say, this is the same pill. But, but the concept that there could be anything in there that would be harmful to people and not kill a guppy is really, really out there. Yes, I agree. And, again, just hammering that one situation that absolutely there's nobody out there manufacturing hobby fish medication they're just not yeah it's just human medication that's rebottled right so basically what we had you know we were looking at homesteaders we're looking at outdoorsmen medical missionaries ocean voyagers people in remote areas gosh and of course people in the preparedness community and we wanted to put together some kind of tool for them in circumstances where the ambulance is just not going to be around the corner, or the hospital is not functioning. And so we wanted to talk about how, how to identify common and even uncommon infectious diseases and how to identify and treat them with these antibiotics. And so we described them in detail, both the diseases and the antibiotics that treat them. We described their uses we described, uh, the, uh, the, of the different antibiotics the common side effects, the dosing for the diseases they treat. Can they be used in kids and can they be used during pregnancy? Can you use them uh, if it's allergic to, if you're allergic to penicillin? And we made it in so much detail that we really, we probably discussed at least a hundred different infectious diseases. But in addition, we talk about how to care for wounds. We talk about uh, the, the, expiration dates and what they mean or what they don't mean and we talk about how to properly store those medicines how to have uh, the best chance of keeping your people healthy in epidemic settings and how to identify the kinds of infections that would possibly be cause an avoidable death in a true disaster with this in mind can you you know give us some information um where this type of information, this type of knowledge would make a difference in a survival scenario. Antibiotics don't treat everything, but they treat some things really well. You're right, and we do not make claims that, you know, an antibiotic is going to kill Ebola virus. Antibiotics do not kill viruses. They kill bacteria, and, and some antibiotics or other antifungal agents will kill funguses we talk about those so this is not a book on ebola we have a book on ebola but this is not a book on ebola this is a book on diseases that can be cured with antibiotics we talk about academic stuff in it a little bit you know how bacteria cause disease how the immune system works how antibiotics work to cure bacterial infections but we give you the practical advice how to tell bacterial disease versus viral disease, how to use antibiotics wisely, all the individual antibiotics and their dosing, their side effects, allergies, things like that. Wait, let's go back and, to the, the wise use of antibiotics first. I want to make it clear to people that we are not telling folks to go out and take these medications to avoid doctors and hospitals. Absolutely not our mission. This is information for Haiti-type situations, for Katrina 
type situations where it's, a, long di- it's long a dire, it is a dire situation. This is not self-help. And I know there's a lot of people out there who listen who want self-help. That is not why we put this book together. Please seek medical care. There's a reason you have doctors. And we have a problem with too many antibiotics in our food system that are causing horrible diseases that we're unable to cure now. And in the future, there's going to be more of those because of overuse of antibiotics. That's right. And the interesting thing is that only about 20% of the antibiotics used in this country are actually given to humans. 80% of the antibiotics given in this country are are go-to food-producing livestock. So basically what we're doing in this country is we're pumping – these uh, pumping our animals that we use for food full of antibiotics and we don't do it not because we're treating an infection but because there's a statistical distant difference in how fast they uh, grow and get to market if you give them antibiotics they grow a little bit faster and they get to market a little bit earlier therefore increasing the profits so the point of the matter is is that it's Antibiotic resistance is bad. You have to know how to use antibiotics judiciously. We try to impart that knowledge in our book. But the truth is we also have to change the way this country looks at giving antibiotics to our food-producing livestock. So let's let's kind of do a little history lesson since you were there when, when it started. Yes. History, that is. Um, so a little bit of history <laughs> on uh, the history of bacteria and the history of antibiotics. I mean, because right, you, well, you were kind of standing there when the first bacteria came up out of the primordial primordial ooze, right? So, yeah, <laughs> I was living on a I was living on a planet that was uh, became eventually the asteroid belt, and I noticed that there are these little wriggly wriggly things on on another planet nearby. That turned out to be Earth, and these turned out to be bacteria. Well, you know, we actually have proof. Don't ask me how bacteria can actually form an impression in stone, but we actually have proof of fossil antibi- fossil bacteria from as far back as 400 million years ago. And a lot of people, a lot of scientists believe that they have been here for a much longer time than that. Matter of fact, for the majority of their time on Earth, they were the predominant life form. This world was ruled by bacteria pretty much and they've left their mark uh, good and bad on pretty much every species that came after them. matter of fact the presence of oxygen in the atmosphere and thus the possibility of life itself as, as we know it at least is a result of bacteria specifically something called cyanobacteria some people uh, it's sometimes called blue-green algae but it's cyanobacteria that actually were the early users of a process called, and here I go back to school, and and you'll remember something called photosynthesis. Cyanobacteria were the first to employ that, and basically they took water, carbon dioxide, and sunlight, and they combined it to produce oxygen. And sure enough, even today, the part of a plant cell that makes, that uses photosynthesis is essentially a cyanobacterium. So almost every plant cell has a bacterial-like organelle, let's call it, no, call it, can't, too small to call it, I'll call it an organ, an organelle that actually produces the oxygen and it's like a bacteria. And so beyond that, 
it took us a pretty gosh darn long time to figure out that there were bacteria. And we, it was all a mystery to us why people would be dying of, of all these infections. But by the mid about 1800s, we finally got a good idea of what's going on because we, we developed microscopes. We developed, um, we had brilliant scientists, Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur is uh, a guy that, first tried to figure out why milk and wine became bad, why they went sour with time. And so he concluded that bacteria, looked at, look under the microscope, concluded bacteria was what caused it, and he figured out that if bacteria can make wine or milk sick, so to speak, well, it might do it to humans too. And that became what's known as the germ theory of disease, which suggests that microbes were the cause of infectious diseases. Now, he couldn't prove that, but there was another scientist named around the same time named Herbert, no, Robert Koch, and he produced an experiment in which he injected mice with the bacteria taken from animals that died from anthrax, and every single one of the injected mice developed anthrax in short order, and that's how we figured out that it is the bac bacteria that is causing these diseases. And so that's pretty much the history of bacteria. Of course, since then, we figured out ways to differentiate them in all sorts of different classifications or all sorts of different sizes and shapes. Some of them are spiral. Syphilis, for example, is a spiral-shaped bacteria. There's uh, E. coli is like a little uh, circle. Uh, we call that a cocci. There's some that are rod-shaped. We call them bacilli. And then we went finally to antibiotics. And the funny thing about antibiotics is that we've actually had evidence of antibiotics for thousands and thousands of years. As a matter of fact, there's an, um, there are remains of ancient Egyptians and ancient Nubians, which was the, uh, I guess the country, the ancient country that was just be, uh, just south of Egypt, where I guess where Sudan is right now. And basically, they found that these people, their remains contained tetracycline. And they were, in general, in much better shape than the surrounding cultures in terms of, you know, the evidence, uh, or at least fossil evidence, of disease. And so it turned out that when they made beer, these ancient Nubians, they used some, they used some soil that got contaminated with that was contaminated with the with a bacterium and the, a byproduct of the bacterium made tetracycline and so they had every time they drank beer they had tetracycline and so they wound up getting less antibiotic less in, infectious diseases than the surrounding cultures that's how we first found out uh, the first evidence thousands of years ago of antibiotics but of course when we actually found it found antibiotics or discovered them and used them was actually in the uh, late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, 1927, as a matter of fact, we figured out penicillin. And we figured out penicillin because of somebody, of a scientist that was essentially a slob. <laughs> and his name was Dr. Alexander Fleming. And I, you know, if anybody is related to Dr. Alexander Fleming, my apologies. But <laughs> he didn't keep a very tidy uh, office. And so, or, or laboratory. And so he decided to go on vacation and he left out a bunch of 
Petri dishes, a bunch of dishes that had bacterial cultures on them. And when he came back, he noticed that some of them had grown something else on it that seemed to suppress the cultures of bacteria that he had originally. And that turned out to be a mold. And the mold was a penicillium mold is the name of the, the species. And sure enough, it suppressed the growth of the bacteria or killed the bacteria that was there. And so that's how we originally got penicillin. And that actually came just in time because it fine, he couldn't figure out a way to mass produce it. But a couple of years later, they mass another scientist mass produced it, came in just in time for World War II to save the lives of probably tens of thousands of soldiers from infection. And by, although like the first dose, first couple of doses of penicillin that were given were 50% of the total amount in the world of penicillin. By the end of the war, three years later, it came out in 42. They, by the end of the war, three years later, there were 676 billion doses that were given. I can't even imagine how they did that. Jack, are you still alive? I am. I'm just wondering what Bones was doing while all that was going on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. During that time period? I think he took a nap. I know. I was. <laughs> No, I was the ruler of uh, of of a, a small African country uh, down uh, down near the Antarctic, a very very far far South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> so, what what do you have to know to be able to prevent or cure infections in a situation where there isn't a functioning modern medical system? Whether it's for <clears throat> a couple weeks or a couple months or a couple years, doesn't really matter. If you're in the situation and, and you have to deal with something like this, um, you know, again, we're back to a time factor. You're, ab you're absolutely right. You have to have what well, bottom line is you have to figure out how to prevent these things from happening in the first place. Because when it comes to d disease in times of trouble, especially infectious disease, boy, an ounce of prevention really is worth a pound of cure. If you know how to prevent, uh, how to provide clean water or safely prepared food to your people, you're going to actually go a long way to preventing them from dying. Remember in this, Amy mentioned the Civil War a couple of times, and the reason why is because infection, simple dehydration from diarrheal diseases like cholera and typhoid and things like that, those things those diseases actually killed more soldiers in the Civil War than bullets or shrapnel did. And so if you can figure out a way to provide clean water, to make sure the food is cooked appropriately, that uh, human waste is disposed of properly, well, that's, that's going to be the most likely way you're going to save people that otherwise would have died in a long-term disaster. And so to purify water, very simple, boil it. For one minute, get a good rolling boil going for one minute. Now, if you are – the um, elevation does make a difference. It used to be that you added a minute for every 1,000 feet of elevation. The CDC now says that just boil it for three minutes if you're at 6,000 feet elevation or more. That's new, by the way. Uh, household bleach would work just fine, about 12 to 16 drops per gallon. I'd say 12 drops per gallon, I think, for – or most water would be just fine. Wait, wait about 30 minutes before you drink it, though, to let it work its magic. Uh, iodine, 2% tincture of iodine, about 12 to 16 drops. That will do as well. 
if you have betadine, that's about 10%, I think, tincture of iodine. So you'd want to use maybe about four drops uh, if you have that. Uh, and, of course, sunlight. If you have a clean, a clear bottle of, uh, let's say, two-liter bottle of, of water, of water, just fill it with about 90%, shake it a little bit, put it out in direct sunlight for about eight hours, and that would kill most critters. And, and make sure that your um, your meat and whatever food that you're cooking is always cooked thoroughly. Uh, the Ebola virus actually was spread by bushmeat that was being eaten by the natives of West Africa. They would eat bats, and they would cook them over 55-gallon drums with a fire in it. They weren't cooked appropriately, and so they, you're eating un- partially uncooked meat, and that wound up spreading Ebola because the bats were the natural reservoir for Ebola. That's where Ebola naturally was. Didn't make the bats sick. They sure made a lot of people sick over there. I'll just so say I'll just say one thing about the water thing. I know what the government says, but um, water begins pasteurizing at 160 degrees. And if you actually held water at 160 degrees for long enough, it will render it safe. The time it takes for water to get from 160 degrees to actual boiling, by the time that happens, there's nothing alive in that water. The government tells you, like, this many minutes or whatever, and the reason they do that is they figure that people are too stupid to know what boiling water looks like. (laughs) So, assuming you do know what boiling water looks like, the time you have to boil water to make it safe is zero minutes. Um, You know, it's the kind of the thing, you know, the watch pot never boils, uh, that that's that that lag in time in that temperature climb, pretty much you boil water, it's safe. I just had to throw that in there because there's times when conserving fuel is also really really important. Well, you know, I'll tell you, I do believe I, I do believe that. I wind up getting, of course, you know, letters when uh, I, I write stuff like that in magazines. Oh, and Jack, Jack never gets anyone that writes back to him. Oh, I'll get, I'll get a person telling me how stupid I am today because, you know, they have a jet boil that they've attached to a thermonuclear device and they can boil water so fast that they, whatever, you know. <laughs> then if that's the case and you're going to boil it for three minutes, why'd you do that? Right, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh, you know. So those are some of the simple things. Of course, you know, read my book about antibiotics. So that when you do have people that do get sick, and you have to, you know, sometimes you can't prevent an illness, and somebody does get sick, you have to be able to recognize it. That's very important. And there are a lot of diseases that you can really identify. If you simply know the physical signs and symptoms, I mean, you don't have to have a a modern laboratory for a lot of these cases. I mean, we've talked about cholera, for example, cholera, of course, everybody knows that's a that causes a great deal of uh, diarrhea, watery stool, things like that. But it actually has a specific look. It looks exactly the bowel movement in cholera looks exactly like the water that's left over once you've cooked rice. Yeah. So it's actually called rice water stool. That's very visual. And, I think that's a great description. But it's a but it's a it shows you that there are some things that you can identify simply by being observant. And the physical signs and symptoms, okay, that we if if you can identify these things, uh, it's called empirical therapy. You could treat people based on their physical signs and symptoms because it, your 
pretty sure that you you got what uh, you have an idea of what is the problem. Now there is something called definitive therapy, and a particular definitive therapy would be a uh, case of definitive therapy would let's say uh, there is a raccoon that is has bitten your leg and it's hanging off your leg. And so the treatment, the definitive treatment for that would be to remove the raccoon from your leg. I think that's, that's an definitive plan, doctor. That, and that's definitive the therapy. The nurse agrees with the doctor. <laughs> right. But that's but empirical therapy, you're guessing based upon the physical signs and symptoms. And indeed, if you can figure out what they are most of the time, you'll save a lot of lives. So... You know, I hear a lot of doomsday scenarios. I'm sure you guys do, too. Most of them are people that, like, when they come into the TSP fold, I have to kind of, let's let's go back to reality. Let's put away the tin hat. Let's let's cancel the order for $20,000 worth of MREs. Let's <laughs> relax a little bit. The UN is not monitoring your call to the survival podcast. <laughs> but... but, but But the one thing people fear that I go, well, yeah, sooner or later, we're going to deal with this, is the concept of an epidemic or even a global pandemic. I just feel, and I'm sure you guys agree, with the sheer numeric advantage that bacteria and viruses and mutations have, that sooner or later, there will be something that you know won't be contained to Montreal in, in one ICU or something. There will be something that's highly contagious, significantly lethal, uh, and has the capacity to go native and spread. And oh. when that happens, we're going to be up shit's creek. What should people do now to prepare for a potential epidemic or pandemic? And, and again, I'm coming at this from a standpoint... This is going to happen. It may not happen while you're, you and I, well, you'll be dead. But, you know, it may not happen <laughs> while I'm alive and average person's alive. But it, it could. And sooner or later, it is, we will deal with this. We're not that advanced that we're not going to deal with this. So with that in mind, how do people prepare for that possibility? You know, you're absolutely right. I want to just say that the Ebola virus mutated theoretically 50 to 250 times during the uh, epidemic in West Africa. So it, as viruses especially have a tendency to mutate, and they mutate often and sometimes they mutate in a significant fashion. If the Ebola virus had mutated in such a fashion that you could get it through the air and not, from, not just from bodily fluids, you would have had a worldwide pandemic with a 50% death rate. And so we're very lucky that that didn't happen, but that you're absolutely right. One day something like that is going to happen, and hopefully not during my lifetime, in other words, in the next week. But uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, it's something that can happen. So what you got to do is you have to start off by planning a sick room. Number one, you should you need to get a room in the house that's not near common areas, that has good ventilation because you don't want to have a you don't want to concentrate you know viral loads or bacterial loads in the uh, droplets in the atmosphere you know in that room you want it to be well ventilated you want to have minimalist type furniture or place to that you can wash your hands uh no fabric no rug that's important because these bugs love to live in in, in that kind of environment and you just have to have a way to 
clean it, a simple 1 to 10 solution of bleach would do just fine. Get antibiotics, of course, for the uh, diseases that might come to your area. There are some areas that it, the the, I guess the, the further south you are, the more likely a tropical disease can occur. For example, you won't see it in New Orleans today, but a lot of people died from yellow fever in New Orleans back uh, back uh, in the 19th century. Uh, but those are things that come back. I even have a chapter that says diseases that will become common hmm. in times of trouble. So we, we talk about common infectious diseases now and we talk about diseases that are going to become common if we wind up going off the grid because of some major disasters. So, right. so these are some of the things you need to do. But the first thing you need to do, plan out a sick room. Now, that doesn't mean I want to visit your house next week and see it in a field hospital in, uh, <laughs> you know, in uh, your your third kid's bedroom. I want just think about where it would be, what stuff that you would need to be able to keep it clean and and to function to keep the healthy people away from the sick people while giving the sick, sick people a good chance for recovery. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Back when we had our place up in Arkansas, we had an RV, which I eventually got rid of because I decided I hated RVs. But, you know, my view was if there was ever something like that that happened uh, and I had family coming up to stay with me because I know they would because they don't do anything to prepare for themselves, uh, you know, until we know you're not dying, y'all stay out there away from us. And I think having that isolation capability uh, is really a good idea. You don't necessarily have to have, uh, a, like you said, a field hospital set up. But you have to have a plan. How am I going to implement this if I need to? And I think another thing that it kind of bugs me when I hear people say this, because they'll say, well, what would happen if this happened? Well, the first thing a government can do is issue a mandatory quarantine. And of course, you get the the uh, the, the Uber, uh, you know, patriot-minded. I can do whatever I want. And, oh, good where I want. They can't stop me. Like you're stupid. You're so stupid because <laughs> that is the one thing you can do is implement quarantine. Yep. Yeah, and you so, and you have to obey, or they're just going to tell you they're going to shoot you. I don't care if they tell me I don't have to. Right? If there's a bunch of people dropping over dead out there. From an infectious disease, I'm not going there. Right. In fact, yep. it was, what I'm suggesting is that the mindset be a self-quarantine until you know we figure out what's going on. Uh, what that, that's been our plan. You're absolutely one of, right. One of the things that we talk about is the concept of social dis distan distancing in the book. There are a lot of non-pharmaceutical interventions that you can do in, a, in an epidemic that will decrease your chances of becoming a victim of it, and one of them is exactly what you're talking about: is social distancing. So we do talk about a lot about that. It's not all about antibiotics itself. We try to give you as much practical advice that involves just doing simple, common sense things like what you're uh, uh, suggesting. Awesome. So um, the book is mostly about antibiotics. What are some important factors in deciding? what antibiotics, and whether you should use them at all. Well, the important thing is to try to have a, a clue as to what whether you're dealing with a bacteria or a virus. Now, a lot of things, a lot of diseases that we have that are infectious diseases are bacterial indeed, and they can be treated with antibiotics. We have to realize, however, that we overuse antibiotics, and a lot of, a lot of people, matter of fact, one at least one to two, I think two out of three patients that wind up 
ending up with a viral infection or actually leave their doctor's office with a prescription for antibiotics, which would actually do absolutely nothing for it. So you have to have an idea of the difference between bacterial and viral disease. And what some of the things, now I have to say that there are a lot of exceptions to the rules here, but I'm going to give you some of the, uh, some of the hints that might clue you into one or the other. And one of them is the length of the illness. Uh, there are a lot of viral bacterias, uh, viral, uh, I'm sorry, viral infections, and most of them, thank goodness, are self-limited. They improve on their own. If, if they don't kill the host, that is, they, they improve on their own. And sure enough, there are a lot of people that, as long as they had some maybe support with hydration, that survived Ebola. Half of the, at least half of the people, I think it ended up being 55% of the people, survived their Ebola uh, infection and indeed it, it was a virus. Now, most of these people will start start to show improvement about 10 days or so, not just Ebola, but a lot of different types of viral infections, even the common cold. The bacterial infections, if you don't treat them, could last a lot longer. So that's something, that's one thing to think about. Then the severity of the fever. A lot of infections are associated with fever, as you can imagine. And bacterial infections tend to be in, uh, associated with the most impressive ones, or the highest fevers. A lot of temperature spikes. Viral infections may or may not show a tendency to low uh, to cause a high fever, but most of the time it's sort of uh, you know low grade fever in most cases. And oh, and what's a fever? A fever is condition uh, is stamp. Well, this is standard medical wisdom is considered to be about 38 degrees centigrade. That's 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. But remember that people usually feel sick a lot early, a lot lower than that. I mean, I'm, I'm normally about 98, and when I hit a temperature of 99, I know that I'm sick. I, I feel Yes, he crawls sick. in bed. Crawl in bed. And if I were you, Bones, I'd worry about when you start cooling off. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> It's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a great weight loss thing too. As soon as, as soon as you die, weight loss begins almost immediately. Yes, but your hair keeps growing. Yes. Very Actually, what I think happens in that case, by the way, is the hair doesn't keep growing. Is the skin retracts your head because you can't produce yeah, new cells you're, when you're dead. Your, your head, your head shrinks and your fingers shrink, so it looks like your hair and nails. Exactly, yes. exactly. You exactly. can't actually make new cells. Well, you know, Bones has been dead before, so he would know. Yeah. <laughs> I've been dead drunk. I'll tell you that. Much. Okay. Well, oh, well, a couple other things: the color of the mucus and viral respiratory infections. Most of the time, the phlegm is sort of whitish or clear. Mucus could be yellow or green in some bacterial infections, especially sinusitis. If it's bacterial, you'll see that uh, yellow or green. There are exceptions to that. Now, a localized infection is more commonly a bacterial infection. If you've got a, an abscess or a boil, that's usually related to a bacteria rather than a virus Um if there are pimples or, or white spots, for example, uh, strep throat, you'll see some white spots on your tonsils or the back of your throat. That's usually bacterial, usually not a sign. Pimples are not usually not a sign of a virus. Uh, and are there other symptoms? So if you have a sore throat without a runny nose or sneezing, that could be indeed strep throat, a bacterial infection. But if you've got a sore throat with a, a lot of nasal congestion, runny nose, things like that, that's probably viral. So those are just some some things. Again, exceptions to the rule rules, but 
they are things that you'll usually wind up being able to sort of figure out. Uh, bacteria probably, virus, virus probably just depends on some of the things I mentioned. Remember, wound infections, urinary tract infections, skin infections, uh, abscesses, these are almost always bacterial. So that's something to keep uh, an eye on. Okay, so... You want to tell people how they can learn more about all of, of your crazy stuff before you kill over and die? <laughs> well, <laughs> since I'm just about to do it, I better go fast. <laughs> I got to say that if, if you can find a lot of information uh, at our website, doomandbloom.net. You know, we have all of these books, all of this information for you that you can have. And I, you know, it's always good to have this stuff in print so that you always have it. Uh, even if there's not an internet one day, but oh, you can find a lot of it on our website at doomandbloom.net. Absolutely. Uh, one quick note, just those looking for Kindle, we don't put our books on Kindle because PDFs are no good to you if you don't have electricity. There you go. You'll find, don't forget, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. You can follow us on um, Facebook at our Doom and Bloom page. Or, or our survival medicine group, survival medicine, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy, YouTube channel, DR Bones, Nurse Amy podcast. Did you say Twitter? Yeah, I said Twitter. Um, <laughs> and our, too much. and our, our current, our, our main book, the survival medicine handbooks is, is in its third edition. Don't forget you should, you should have that. And the, our new book, Alton's Antibiotics. And infectious disease, the layman's guide to available antibiotics and antibacterials in austere settings. You is it's a unique book. You will not find anybody writing about Nothing this like stuff anywhere all. else. Nope. All right, well, guys, as always, it's been fun having you around, Bones. I'm, I'm glad you made it through the episode without falling over <laughs> and dying. Amy, I, I'm sorry that your your mop won't be there, and you're gonna have to use a rag on his feet for the next couple of days. But Amazon's backed up and shipping the miracle mop. But I did order you on; it's on the way, and Thank you. Uh, you'll be able to keep him clean that way from ten feet away. Great, and- well, I, I was just gonna say, and I, I sent, and I sent you a gift ba- a gift basket of meat. You're getting, uh, some, you're getting some meat. <laughs> Oh, say what? What? I'm set, I, oh, you were asleep. I'm oh, sorry, honey. I, I ordered uh, Jack and Dorothy a gift basket of some meat. Of meat, yes. Meat. Yes, just meat. meat. They love meat. Yes. They're meat eaters. Bag of meat. Absolutely. Box of meat. <laughs> Boxofmeat.com. There you go. Oh, you do have a sponsor called Butcher Box, but I think I'm going to write oh, Dan- yeah. Daniel. Awesome. I'm going to write Daniel over there and tell him to just change it to boxofmeat.com. Box? I think that's. That's a better marketing twist. No, he needs to buy that box domain immediately. Meat. Box of meat. Bigassboxofmeat.com. <laughs> I love it. Guys, I've, I had a great time with you. Appreciate you being here. I'll make sure links to all of that nonsense that Bones rattled off there at the end are in the show notes because don't nobody know what he's talking about, and they'll be able to find all your stuff <laughs> and connect oh, with I you. Didn't want, I just wanted to mention real quick that uh, – oh, are we still on? Yeah. yeah Okay. I just want to mention that we are honored to be part of the expert council, and so you can uh, listen to us answer some of your readers' questions, Jack, uh, uh, every Friday or so. Questions. Yeah, we need more questions. We're out of questions for these guys, and like Bones and Amy are not on the Pikers list. Like when I send them a question, 
they actually answer it. And they, like you guys in the audience, you need to realize if you want to hear Amy, you got to say oh, it's yeah. for Amy because Joe's gonna just get it and think like I get to talk, so he's gonna always answer it unless you <laughs> say specifically. I really need to break y'all up on the bio page and like have you independent of each other. Oh no, people then, know no, that. Then, no, then she'd I'll, be the piker. Yes, it would be great. Yes, do it, oh, do it. No, I don't want to be admonished from the principal. I'm a good girl. I'm a good student. <laughs> so yeah, if you guys want to hear Amy more, you got to ask the question to Nurse Amy and. She can help with a lot of things like how to take care of an old senile man. and I uh, can answer that. How to use yeah. herbs to get him to wake up and go to sleep. All kinds of cool stuff. I can yeah. explain how to do a bed bath. Yeah. <laughs> and, beyond, bed bath. and beyond. And beyond. <laughs> bed bath and beyond all reason. Anyway, guys, I had a great time with you. Thanks for being with us today on the show. All right. Bye, Thanks, Jack. Jack. Merry Christmas. I'll always have fun when old Doc Bones is around. With that, guys, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you, especially this time of year, when you're doing your online shopping, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. If you, uh, if you, you shop there, no matter what you buy, you end up supporting the Survival Podcast no matter what you end up buying. So you can always do that, and you always find all our items for review. Kind of like to throw out a, a suggestion here. You join my email list. If you join my email list, most days you will get a single email from me. That single email will be everything that was put on the blog and maybe a few other things that happened that day. But that's all you get is one email from me. Now, I don't do an email per post anymore. I turned off the automation to do that. It makes it more work for me, but I think it works better for people and it consolidates things and what have you. And it avoids... Uh, technological mess-ups that make people angry because they get like 20 emails in one day when they all build up and spit out at once. Um, but had you been on my email list yesterday, you would have gotten two emails instead of one. You would have got a single standalone email for a post I did uh, for a T-SPAS item that was a what you call a lightning deal. This is where Amazon puts something on like a stupid cheap price limits you to only getting one and sells them till they're gone or until the end of the day and then the deal goes away. So I'm going to tell you about our item of the day today in just a second, but I want to tell you about this lightning deal, what, what you missed out on if you don't follow me on social media or you don't get on the email list. Streamlight has a, a lantern called the Siege Lantern. It is the best compact LED lantern on the market. I mean, basically no one disputes that. Um, and their compact one, the 540 lumen one, usually sells um, for about 70 bucks. And uh, it was on sale yesterday for 1995. It was marked down to $43. Um, it was marked down more than what it was selling for. And at 20 bucks, those things are just a stupid deal. Several hundred of them sold uh, from that announcement uh, through TSPAS. And if you didn't get that opportunity, it's because you're not on the email list. So it'd be a good reason to be on the email list too, and actually read the emails when they come in. Especially when you see an email come like earlier in the day, and it's clearly not the Daily Mail. Uh, it's usually a reason for that. That was a hell of a deal. Uh, today's item of the day is uh, a book called uh, Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day. I'm not a bread eater. I really don't eat a lot of bread. Certainly not a regular thing. A lot of y'all do, though, and I, I try to help people do whatever they do the best that they can. I did buy this book just to review it a couple years ago because I'd seen a lot of people in the audience buying it through T-SPAS. 
And what it does is it gives you a method of making dough. You put the dough in a bowl. You put the bowl in the refrigerator. You do that on Sunday. And then every day during the week, you pull off a portion of that and you make a loaf of bread. And it really is that easy. And they have tons of different options and uh, recipes and things like that. It makes really great bread. I even went ahead and made some just to see. Because uh, it's not that I don't like to eat bread. I just don't need to be eating bread on a daily basis. It's not good for my health and my body type. Uh, but if you make bread, this is the way I would do it. If you eat bread, I'd rather than eating bread from the store, I, I think you buy your, you know, your highest quality uh, wheat flour and you can make an outstanding product with this book. It would also make a great gift for the person in your life that likes to bake and cook and things like that. The busy person that wants to bring more homemade stuff into their home but only has so much time. It really does take about five minutes a day. It's a great book. Again, it's called Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day. You can find it at T-SPAS under the most current reviews or under the cooking category. Uh, you'll find it there as well. Remember, everything at T-SPAS is in categories. Those categories are alphabetical, and if you find it on T-SPAS, I own it. I've spent my money on it, or I wouldn't ask you to. That brings us to our song of the day. I went ahead and called an audible today. And the reason I did that is uh, John Adam, who does the music list for me, had selected uh, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus by John Mellencamp, Cougar Mellon, Cougar Camp, whatever he is today, and whenever he decided to call himself again. Uh, and I actually like a lot of John Cougar's music, and that's who he'll always be to me, because I remember Jackie and Diane and Hurt So Good and stuff like that. Uh, but I just wasn't feeling that song today. I, you know, I, I wanted something more traditional today. And I thought about some of the great all-time Christmas songs. And Bing Crosby's I'll Be Home for Christmas sprung to mind. I never really dug into like the genesis of that song and what it meant and where it came from. It was released in 1943, and the United States was deeply involved in World War II at that point. We had soldiers, sailors uh, across the world who were spending their very first ever Christmas not home. And this song, you know, you, if you listen to it, it's about I'll be home for Christmas, you can count on me. But there's that other line in there that, that really is sorrowful, if only in my dreams. And this song quickly became a favorite of our, our, vet, our GIs. They weren't veterans yet. They were serving soldiers and, 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 and uh, Marines and uh, uh, sailors. So we didn't have really airmen as we think of them now yet because it was the Army Air Corps. So they were all soldiers, even those that were flying the planes. It became the number one requested song at USO events and things like that. And uh, it, it became something really special. Well, there's actually more to the story. As I was researching this, I found this uh, old uh, piece that explains how this song kind of got tied in with the Macy's department store and one particular aircraft carrier. And it is a pretty heartwarming story. And the song didn't cause it to happen. But the song being released at the same time that this whole occurrence happened kind of linked the two for the men that were serving and were able to reach the people back home and let them know that they cared about them uh, with the assistance of Macy's. And then Macy's went an extra step and let their loved ones send them something really special back. And this was at a time when we didn't have Internet and Skype and things like that. And communication was by letter only 99% of the time, maybe a still picture or two. And it took an awful long time for a letter to find a sailor or a soldier serving the Pacific or Europe. 
especially once the full-on shooting war in Europe started. It, it, it really took a long time then. You might not know where they were to get it to them for quite a long time. Uh, things have changed a lot. I wanted to take us back to that time. So what I'm going to do is before I play the song, I'm going to play this little promotional piece about what happened with the chaplain and uh, uh, the skipper of this aircraft carrier and the men that were aboard it and the Macy's department store. It's a pretty heartwarming story. And then we'll just fade that straight into Bing Crosby's I'll Be Home for Christmas. And maybe this song will sound just a little bit different for you than it ever has before. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. On Christmas 1943, the chaplain of the North Carolina battleship collected $5 from each crewman who had children in the States and then sent that money to Macy's department store to buy presents for the children and mail them to the crewmen's homes. This practice was begun just a year earlier, when the North Carolina was halfway around the world. Its crewmen felt it especially difficult because it was the first away from home. With no opportunity to send Christmas presents back home to their families, a brilliant idea surfaced. Since the ship had been built in the New York Navy shipyard in Brooklyn, Macy's was sent a check and a list with names and addresses of the crewmen's families and a list of presents for each. Macy's was asked to select the presents, wrap, and mail them to the families. In 1943, the chaplain was also involved in the staging of the Christmas show that the crew thoroughly enjoyed. When the show ended, the chaplain asked everyone to remain seated as he had a surprise for them. It was unknown to anyone, but Macy's had gathered all the children and wives of the crewmen they could find and filmed each of them and sent it to the chaplain. Each child and mom would say hi or other greetings to their loved one, and needless to say, there wasn't a dry eye that night. After that, Macy's had become the battleship North Carolina's Santa Claus. It is this sentiment of being home for Christmas that was also expressed in the newly released 1943 holiday song titled, I'll Be Home for Christmas. One of the most nostalgic of all World War II period songs and a cherished part of American Christmas classics, I'll Be Home for Christmas, became an instant bestseller when the popular Bing Crosby recorded it and it was the most requested song at Christmas USO shows in both Europe and the Pacific, greatly helping military morale. It's not too difficult to imagine how American fighting boys may have felt at Christmas during one of the 20th century's most difficult periods. How they must have longed to be home for the holidays, instead of off fighting on desolate foreign battlegrounds or sailing the turbulent waters of the world's oceans on a battleship like North Carolina. The brief I'll Be Home for Christmas certainly packs an emotional wallop with its wistful lyrics. Even today, it would not be a far stretch to suggest that whenever people, especially our brave military men and women, are away during the holidays, this special Christmas song might be on their lips as they gaze homeward. Be home for Christmas 
If only 